Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello everyone and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today I'm delighted to talk again to Dr. James Tabor. You're most welcome, sir. Thank you very much, Paul. Looking forward to it. It's been a couple of years. I think you were last year. I think it was looking. I was looking earlier on. It's like two years ago that you. I know. Uh, I can't. I can't uh, believe it's been that long because I, I follow your material and you follow mine, and you know we've got a lot of interesting things to talk about. So absolutely. And uh, just for those who don't know, I'll just mention that James uh, just retired last year, actually, as a, a full professor from the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Charlotteville, which is in America, obviously. Where Actually, he Charlotte, uh, Charlotte, not Charlotteville, yeah. Charlottesville is University of Virginia. It's easy to mix up. Oh, no. Charlotte, North Carolina, yeah, no problem. Thank you for pointing that out. And uh, at that place that you just mentioned, you taught uh, Christian origins and ancient Judaism for 33 years, which makes you one of the great experts on those subjects, obviously. And among James's publications include over 50 published articles, as well as nine academic books. He's also um, a popular public lecturer um, and who's often consulted by national and international media. For example, Time, Newsweek, New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street, and many, many others. James has a professional blog that uh, deals with biblical studies, as well as a popular YouTube channel, um, James Table Videos, and I'll, I'll link to these items in the description below and other resources as well. Um, now, today, James has kindly agreed to come on to talk about a really important subject, I think. Did the first followers of Jesus, the companions of Jesus, if you will, did they think that Jesus was divine? Did they think he was God? What do our earliest historical sources say about this? And they happen to be the Gospel of Mark and the writings of the Apostle Paul and this entity or alleged entity called Q, um, which uh, I think James will explain what this thing is, the Q is, what it actually means. So, so James, would you like to perhaps introduce us to this fascinating subject? Yes, and method is important, as you know, Paul, in any approach to any subject, actually. And the method we would use is to ask the question, did the first followers of Jesus think of him as God? We'll just make it blatant. Uh, one to be worshipped, one with the one God, even if you want to go so far as the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy mm -hmm. Ghost. Uh, even most academics would say no on that, but... You know, that's because you're going all the way to the full Nicene Creed and the Chalcedon Creed. Mm. But there's a long way between uh, the first century around mm. the year 30 when Jesus dies and the post-Nicene, post-Constantinian theology. So we're sticking with the early. Yep. And when we say the first followers, our only access would be to take the three earliest sources. And so uh, they're in the New Testament. And uh, 
you know, you could go outside and try to use Josephus or Tacitus or some of the other references. Actually, they're later. And mm. uh, also, they don't give direct testimony other than maybe saying the word Christ. But mm. then that doesn't tell us, you know, Christ is Messiah, the anointed one. Mm. So I'm going to start with Mark. I think, mm. you know, I have this course, uh, Creating Jesus. Right. And uh, you're going to put the link to it. Yep. And it's a study of Mark. Yep. Uh, if you get it, you get a course pack and outlines and it's video lectures that I did hmm. in studying Mark more in depth. And one of the things in that course would be the question, who is this man? You know, who is this person? Hmm. And, and that would be, according to most of us uh, who study these synoptic gospels plus John, the four in the New Testament, our earliest uh, one. In other words, Matthew and Luke kind of rewrite Mark. Right. So instead of people jump all over the place and quote things here and there, it's better to go to the original source, or let's just call it our earliest source. Mm. Now, what's striking about that immediately as you open it is there's no virgin birth narrative. Mm. Mm. Now, I don't think people take that with sufficient shock. Uh, if you, I'm going to get my Bible here. I open Mark 1, mm, yep. and right away... <laughs> yep. Technically, I wouldn't even know who the guy is, and I think that's important. Mark, uh, mm -hmm. he's going to introduce you to him, and he's going to draw you to a certain conclusion at the end. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't prejudge it in any way or present it ahead of time like Matthew and Luke. You picture a band going, glory, hallelujah, angels singing, virgin birth, uh, every you know, even Herod and uh, Matthew and so forth. And I think because we have that in our head, it's very hard for us to read Mark as Mark. One of the things I say in the course, uh, I wish I could give people a pill, uh, but uh, forget everything you know. Don't go like, well, what about this? What about that? Because these things are just rattling around. We're coming yeah. up to Easter, Christmas. People know that they know the Christmas plays better than they know the text. Yeah. So we're not interested. We're looking at the, our earliest source. And so we're not interested in anything other than what's in that source. Mm -hmm. No presuppositions. Mm -hmm. And what you have is, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John, that's John the baptizer, in the Jordan. That's mm -hmm. his intro. Mm -hmm. uh, so as I said, people should be kind of shocked by that because uh, other than the first line, which I'll get to in a minute, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, maybe brackets the son of god yeah. but uh that's how he's introduced jesus of nazareth comes down and joins the baptist movement bet mgm has an unreal deal for sports fans in virginia turn five dollars into 150 dollars instantly when you place your first wager at bet mgm simply download the bet mgm app and sign up using code champion 150 then Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. So I'm going to go through, and then we're going to end up at the ending. And I think that's even more shocking. Mm. Because every we're coming up to Easter next Sunday, mm. and believe me, nobody's going to read Mark. Nobody's going to read the ending of Mark unless it's some very progressive church with inviting <laughs> me as a guest speaker or something. It's just not going to happen. Uh, of course they won't. They'll read Luke about put your hands, you know, see my wounds, or John, or Jesus walking with the two men. I mean, all of these things. But if you read Mark. There are, no, there are no sightings. I like to call it sightings. There are no sightings of Jesus at all. And there's no resurrection of Jesus in the earliest gospel in the yeah. Bible. There simply is no resurrection. Um, yeah, well, the term resurrection is used, and we'll get to that, but it's actually not resurrection. It's the word egero, meaning he's been lifted up or carried right. away. Right. And there are various, you know, interpretations of that. So, uh Let's just look at a few things. I'll start with that first verse. Hmm. Uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, I'm going to say Messiah, because for Mark, it's not his second name yet. You know, it's not his family name, hmm. like Jesus Christ, you know. And just like John the Baptist is not his name. He's not Mr. Baptist. He's John, the one who dips. Yeah. This would be Jesus, the anointed one. Yeah. Well, priests are anointed. And kings are anointed in the Hebrew Bible. Mm -hmm. So is he a priest? Is he a king? Mark doesn't tell you. People say, oh, well, he's the son of David. We know that from Matthew. Don't go to Matthew yet. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to get Mark. Now, yes, in Mark, he is the son of David, but it's not here. So right away, Mark wants you to feel the mystery. You're supposed to say, almost like the end of the Lone <laughs> Ranger years ago on TV, Mm. Who was that man, you know, at the end of the thing? You're but, supposed uh, to ask, who was he? Yeah. But James, I think you made, well, your, your methodology here is really important because Christians often, and understandably, they have, as you say, they have bits of Mark, Matthew, bits of John and bits of Luke, uh, along with, say, the Christmas stories in your example. And they kind of all blend them together in some kind of super narrative. But what historians do, and obviously you're, you're a, a historian, is that you look at particular, preferably the earliest texts, and you don't allow other texts just to intrude and allow you to interpret them. No, you want to know what the text alone says. So you're not in the business of homogenizing all the New Testament exactly. together, creating this systematic presentation of who, like systematic theologians do. As an historian, you want to laser in on one text. Absolutely. Any cross-contamination, if I can use that pejorative term, from any other source to listen to what Mark is saying and Mark right. alone before you jump to other Gospels and see what they do. And that's very, I found talking to Christians, and indeed having been a Christian, I know that psychologically it's difficult to do that. Very you difficult. want to bring in all these other sources all the time. But if you want to, as your historian, you're not doing that, are you? You're quite strict. And this is not your peculiar James methodology. This is called the historical method. Historical exactly. Method. You you are very careful with your sources. Uh, and then now both enterprises could be valid. You just need to define what you're doing. Someone yeah. might say, well, I'm interested in 
systematic theology and so I put it all together fine that's another thing but I'm that's not something that I do You're I'm trained as a historian of religions okay so line one yep. the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the anointed one that's a better translation the chosen one now Mark wants you to it's almost like he's whispering to the reader because the whole once the story starts think of it as a play uh, a narrator comes out on the stage and says to the audience, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, shh, they don't know. And then the play starts. And this is it. So you begin, uh, when he's introduced in the narrative, you don't know who he is. Jesus comes from Nazareth. You go, Who's he? And he takes you through. Now, it doesn't work today with people because they want to add all this stuff you're talking about. Oh, I know who he is. He's this and this and he did this and... But lots of times when Matthew explains something, uh, Mark didn't explain it, and he's actually helping you with Mark because you got to figure it out. Mm -hmm. Now, Son of God, I don't care if it's in or not in, but uh, Metzger, who's one of the great textual critics, the late Bruce Metzger, he gives it a C rating in his Greek New Testament I've got right here, a C rating. A would be really probably authentic. B maybe C is like C is getting you know you don't want to get a C in a course if you're a good student. It's not a really good rating. So why does he put it in? He puts it in brackets, but mm. no translator usually is going to do that because people won't buy the text. Like ninety percent of Bible sales are to believers, right? And so if I put the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, brackets, son of God. Now, they footnote it in, in RSV and scholarly. Yeah. Say many authorities leave this out. But they're That's not right. going to put it in brackets like the Greek does. Because then people say, what is this? These liberal translators are taking out words. So we want to study it. So we have to recognize now, he is the son of God in Mark. That's not a question, but we got to talk about what that means. But this yes. verse may or may not say that. I mm. personally feel that it didn't say that because that would give away the secret. Mm. See, there's a secret. He's the Christ. Now let's start the story. And now he's Jesus again. However, next scene, when he's baptized, and this mm. is very important, you ask 10 people who are Christians in any church, in London or here in Charlotte, what did the voice say when Jesus was baptized? I guarantee you they will quote Matthew. Mm -hmm. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. It's an, it's an announcement. But as you go through Mark, nobody knows who he is. And when the demons or evil spirits know, he says, be quiet, don't tell. Whenever he works a miracle, be quiet, don't tell. And even when the disciples finally say, I think you're the Christ. He goes, shh, don't tell, okay? So what does Mark actually say? You are my beloved son in whom yes. I'm well pleased. It's a revelation to Jesus. Mm. Now, even there, it's based on a quote from uh, Isaiah 42. It's the servant of Yahweh or Jehovah. And what does he say? Behold my servant, in whom my soul delights, in whom my soul is well pleased. So it's a pair of, so he's the servant, the son. Uh, you have to look up son of God all the way through the Hebrew Bible to know the variation. Adam is a son of God. 
uh, every king of Israel is a son of God. It's the way of metaphorically talking about a very beloved relationship. All humans in the Bible are children of God. You know, they're Jesus even uh, attributed to him the statement, you know, blessed are the peacemakers for they should be called sons of God. Exactly. That's, I'm glad you pointed that out. That's so in it's few, not, but it's not an exclusive term in the Christian tradition. It narrowed down just to one individual right. in history, Jesus Christ. But even in Luke's gospel, it has Adam in the great genealogy going back. Yes. And is Adam, the son of God, you know. And nobody's so, worshipping Adam. Well, maybe no some. worshipping Adam because he's the son of God. So the title itself, being called the son of God, was a property of many people, in, in Jesus' view, according to Matthew anyway. Anyone could be called the son of God if they were peacemakers. But in Christianity, it's become an exclusive de designation and status of one man alone. And that is an innovation. That is a new development post, post after the Gospel of Matthew. It actually oh, is. Oh, and and. Yeah. Even the, the, the texts, we won't go into all of Christology because we want to stay with Mark, but even the texts from the Psalms, like, you are my son, this day I've begotten you, this is spoken to David. Uh, rulers, you know, uh, it's, the, uh, it's a metaphorical idea. But here's what people miss. The point is not, you are my beloved son, it's in whom I am well pleased. Mm. It's Isaiah 42, in whom my soul delights in Hebrew. Meaning, you're the guy I'm going to pour the spirit out on and used as my messenger. It's a prophetic anointing is what it is. In other words, I'm pleased with you. And if you read on the text of Isaiah 43, it, it's basically, it's not an exact quote. It's an allusion to it for sure. Yeah. Uh, what does that figure do in Isaiah 42? He's certainly not God, but he carries out a mission for God. And uh, that's one of those servant hymns yeah. so anyway that's how it begins and so jesus has been told god is well pleased with him and kind of go on with your mission john has been arrested so he he's mm. quickly out of the picture and then uh right away we get to chapter two and we're not going to go through all of mark but this is one of the passages it is when jesus heals a paralyzed man and it's a long story, but in verse 7, uh, some of the people watching, when he says, my son, your sins are forgiven, they say, this is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And everybody stops there. It's, there it is. He just said, your sins are forgiven. He's God. They don't read even the following verses where Jesus realizes they're thinking that. And he says, why are you questioning that in your hearts? He's a mind reader here. And he says uh, that, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Mm. This is a designated authority. It's given to Abraham, for example, mm. when uh, the Egyptian king almost sleeps with Sarah or, you know, takes her and... Uh, the narrative says uh, he's a prophet and he will pray for you, you know, mm -hmm. for your forgiveness. It, it's a kind of a mediation kind of thing. But it's not this thing like, you know, by the authority of God, I know God. It's nothing like that. You got to read it's, it in context. It's interesting. Uh, I mean, uh, breaking our rule for a second and jumping to the Gospel of Matthew, if I may, in this in the passage uh, where Matthew recounts exactly the same story in Matthew chapter nine. Um, the crowd, the Jewish, the Jews around him, uh, when they heard Jesus 
um, say, you know, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. When the crowd saw it, they were filled with awe and they glorified God who had given such authority to human beings. Yeah. And that's the, and that's the end of that passage. In Absolutely. Matthew. Yeah. Matthew, clearly, he's in agreement with the, the, the pious crowds here in awe of God. Uh, in the understanding that the man Jesus had been given this authority as a human truly, by truly. God. Yeah. Uh, so I think there's a fascinating corroboration of what you've just said. Yeah, uh, and he, that's, what we can say then is that's his reading of Mark. So somebody says, well, I think it means he's God. And you say, well, you know, the earliest interpretation of it, like a commentary, is Matthew. And he doesn't read it the way you're saying. Isn't that interesting? It's, so, it is very, very interesting indeed. Because th th this is—I've often relayed this back to Christians, and they—they they don't want to hit. It just goes over their head. They don't want to process that, and they just insist that Jesus is God because he forgave sins, even though Matthew's commentaries, you say, actually suggest the opposite. Yeah, exactly. Now, then, uh, you know, we're not going to do them all, but I'm going to do. That's one of the main ones. The the first verse, and then that one. Uh, and I wanted to look at the so-called transfiguration. That's just a term that people use. But in Mark 9, uh, Jesus, there's a vision. And remember, it's a vision. And uh, in which uh, three figures are seen. Jesus, who's present with them. They're up on a mountain. Geographically, it's probably not, I'm sorry to say, Mount Tabor, which is the <laughs> traditional site. I'd like to claim you know the mountain in this event but you know i have a czech name it comes from the czech republic people don't know the second largest city in the czech republic is after prague is tabor and it's the hussites who pull it right out of the bible it's not genetic i'm i'm not a descendant and they said you know we're the new mount tabor and since he appeared on the old mount tabor uh that mountain that becomes Tabor, the Czech Republic, John Huss. Cool origin of your name, I must yeah. add. A hundred years before Luther, and Huss is much yes. more delightful a character than Martin Luther. Although he was martyred as well by the Catholics who didn't like his... Uh, yeah, but Luther was uh, pretty nasty in certain ways that we won't go into right now. No, we won't mention that. No, so. so anyway, we've got this scene, and if you notice... Uh, it's, it is a kind of a glorification where Jesus appears in white garments and so forth. And, uh, th but also Elijah and Moses appear. Mm. And it's sort of a, a picture of the kingdom of God when it comes with power. So mm. it'd be what we call throughout many Muslim, Christian, and Jewish texts, the Alam Haba, the world to come, the age to come. Jesus says quite a few things about it. Uh, you won't marry and give in marriage, and you'll be glorified like angels. So this is like a foretaste. But notice Moses and Elijah also are there hmm. because they're departed souls, but they're now being pictured. Uh, he often says things like, you'll see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. Hmm. Uh, this is a, a text found throughout the Gospels. But what I'm interested in here is the voice. Uh, the voice finally tells the disciples, kind of shut up and let me tell you what this means. It's already been defined as the kingdom of God come with power. So in Mark, there's going to be a final manifestation of the kingdom at the end of the age. In the meantime, the kingdom is already a little seed planted in history and can begin to grow. So here he says, uh, a cloud overshadowed them, a voice came, 
this is my beloved son. Uh, same thing again. And it's Isaiah 42. You know, this is the one in whom my soul delights. Listen to him. So it's simply saying, if you want to know the implications of this, listen to him. Don't run off with, oh, I think it's this and I think it's that and so forth. And it was a foretaste of what is not going to be reported in Mark, resurrection glory. You know, mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. heavenly figure. But Mark does believe, I think, that not only Jesus and Moses and Elijah, but all those who follow eventually, it's a lot like Paul, will be uh, have this glorified state. He says, he talks about that in Mark, that when people are doubting the resurrection, uh, the Sadducees, he says, well, you don't know the scripture. Uh, when he says to Abraham, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's not the God of the dead, he's the God of the living. Of course, they're dead, but all live to him. It's mm -hmm. not death is annihilation, death is a final end, but with hope of this kingdom. So people turn to that a lot and they say, oh, look, he's shining and glorious and so he's the son of God well clearly if you we could go to Paul who shares Mark's view of the glorified resurrection he said even in Mark it says you'll be as angels so yes that glory how many times are angels described heavenly messengers uh, is a better term from the other side in a glorified state uh, the angel Gabriel is the most common, and when people see him, they kind of fall over pretty shocked. They don't just say, oh, there's a guy in my room. We'll have a little chat. They're sort of like overwhelmed with the glory. So you get that in the New Testament. You get it in the Hebrew Bible. You get it in the Quran, that the appearance of an angel. But in Mark, he says those who are worthy to obtain the resurrection in the age to come, mm will be like angels. So it's this heavenly glorification. And Paul would say, and they'll actually be above angels. The angels are servants of God. They will be the intimate family of God. And I think Mark shares that view. Mm -hmm. So once again, to single Jesus out, when he actually gives this same kingdom glorification to all the followers, uh, they want glory throughout this book. But they'd like to have it right now, like take over Rome and live in the palaces of Herod and so forth. And I, this isn't our topic, but they're, they're never commended anywhere in the Gospels for anything, the disciples. Mm -hmm. So it became a real problem for the church. You know, to have, it's one thing for Peter to fail a little bit at the end, but never are they commended, even mm -hmm. for understanding something. In fact, three times they're rebuked. You don't understand this? How do you not understand this? If you don't understand this, how are you going to understand anything? Mm. And constantly they misunderstand. And finally, Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're mm. not on the side of God, but of men. Mm. And uh, Luke just takes that out, of course, <laughs> because, I mean, yeah. how do you explain that? But it's mm. not that he's satanic in that sense. But his understanding of Christ mm. is hook yourself to him and you'll have glory and power and he's saying, no, 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 we're in this age mm. where you're going to be persecuted if you go this way. Mm. You will have to take up a cross. And that's not a little thing you wear around your neck. Mm. It means, and it doesn't even mean just necessarily be crucified. It's a metaphor for the suffering you will have if you follow this way.
Mm -hmm. And and, uh, anyway, so then, uh, so that one I think is often pointed to, you know, the glorified Jesus that's shining like the sun Mm. and so forth. Uh, The other one is really interesting. And boy, the other gospels just go crazy with this. A man comes up to Jesus, it's Mark 10, 17. And he, he kneels before him and, you know, it's okay to kneel before your teacher or your rabbi. I mean, you sit at their feet. It absolutely, maybe to him, it applied more obeisance than Jesus was wanting. But in Judaism, uh, there's a lot of reverence given to teachers, and he calls him good rabbi. In fact, as you know, Paul, in Judaism today, rabbi, rav, you know, you talk about Rav Schneerson, Rav means great one. And actually in the Gospels, Jesus says, no, don't do that. Even for me, don't call me great one. Well, notice here, he says, good teacher. All he says is good. I mean, who would not think their teacher is good? Uh, And notice how careful Jesus is. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's 1017. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Mm. You know the commandments. Now, oh boy, people just go nuts with this. Mm. But he was, Jesus was good. I would say, yeah, I certainly think he seems to come across as good from what we can know. He's a good figure in human history. But he doesn't want to be called even good because it's this rabbinic tradition of just making these great ones and they're, calling them rabbi and teacher. And there, we have a tradition within Q that, you know, you shouldn't do that because human, no human is great. So he, even Jesus basically is saying here, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm a human being, thing. okay? Yeah. I'm a human being. Mm. And he, this is such a problem that Matthew changes it and mm. says, why do you ask me about the good? Mm. Well, mm. He didn't ask him about the good. He called him good. Yeah. yeah. And if you read to some of the distinguished biblical commentators like Jimmy Dunn, uh, the English uh, New Testament scholar, uh, he, he says in one of his books that um, he, he thinks it's likely that Matthew is embarrassed by uh, Jesus' denial of, of his uh, divinity even in, in Mark 10. And so he changes the Jesus Jesus words to reflect better. Unquestionably, unquestionably. The, the circumstances yes. of the writing of Matthew towards the end of the first century to reflect better the, the status that Jesus had acquired then, uh, much later on. So it's, it's interesting how the earlier Gospels are changed to, to fit later views rather than um, uh, an insistence on historical accuracy and fidelity to what Jesus had alleged. Absolutely. Said. And that's an important observation, I think, about how Matthew treats his sources. He can be very free with them if he doesn't agree with them. And these sources sometimes are, inverted commas, the word of God, the, the Bible itself, Mark's gospel. That's right. Now, uh, I want to do Son of Man, and we're mm. going to go back to chapter 2 and pick it up, because mm. we did. this is Son of God and forgiving sins and all that. So let's go back to chapter 2. And we got a controversy about uh, harvesting grain on the Sabbath. And uh, it's forbidden for two reasons. The rabbis say it's threshing, which it would be. And it's also forbidden because you should prepare your meals on Friday. And uh, you don't 
on Saturday go, oh, I need some grain. Mm. So what's really interesting about Mark, he, he really plays with this reader here. And oh boy, does Matthew go crazy with this one. <laughs> you have to compare the two. We can't go into great detail, but people can read it. Now in Mark, he basically says, and I'm going to paraphrase it here. He says, oh, we're breaking the law? Oh, you know, I'm going to be sarcastic, but uh, sorry about that. Uh, you know, but David broke the law. He was in a situation where his troops were famished and he went in and ate. It'd be like eating the Holy Communion bread. You know, you break into the Catholic Church and you start eating the host. Actually, it'd probably be okay because they're not sanctified. But you get the idea. It's rather disrespectful. But in the Torah, it says no one but the priests, high priest can eat that bread. Okay. And he goes, but David did it. And then he says, and Matthew takes this out. The Sabbath is for people, not people for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man, a human being, is Lord of the Sabbath. Mm. What does that mean? It doesn't mean, therefore, I, as the Son of Man, or God, am Lord of the Sabbath. That's how Matthew takes it. Mm. But if you read it in context, he's saying humans our, our laws are for humans, not humans for laws. Therefore, human need determines interpretations of laws. Well, we know that. The illustration I always give is not the Sabbath, because people don't follow those today, other than Orthodox Jews. But uh, you shouldn't lie. And I'll, I like to give the extreme example. The Nazis are hunting Anne Frank. She's in the attic. Good Christian couple sheltering Anne Frank. Everybody knows the story, the diary of Anne Frank. They knock on the door. The neighbors said, uh, we think you might be harboring Jews. Are you? Absolutely not. We would not do that. We are loyal to the Fuhrer. And uh, thank you very much. Oh, good. Do you mind if we search your house? No, please search it. And if I hear of any other people harboring Jews, believe me, I, I will contact you. Complete lies. Laws are for people, not people for laws. We all know this. Some people call it situational ethics. That's a nice fancy term. It's actually common sense. Mm. If keeping a law harms someone, and Jesus says, is it lawful to do good or harm on the Sabbath? He even mentions an animal in a pit. Mm. You know, what, you're going to sit there, maybe it has a broken leg, it's in pain for 24 hours. Oh, well, it's just an animal. We need to worship God. And Jesus is appalled at that. It's like, no, uh, you know, you've got it. So here people think Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. They take that and they begin their Son of Man thing. Same thing. Well, in Matthew, he thinks that for sure. Mm. So he changes it, takes out laws are for people. People are not for laws. He takes it out. And he says, why did the priests work on the Sabbath? And people would say, well, for the temple. He said, Jesus is greater than the temple. Therefore, they can pick the grain on the Sabbath because they're serving Jesus, who's mm -hmm. even greater than the temple, just like the priests. And so the Son of Man, see what he does? Completely alters the passage mm -hmm. to mean Jesus is, if not God, the reason this is allowed. And the reason it's allowed, you or I could decide in any situation how to conscientiously follow truth, justice, righteousness based on 
the judgment of the circumstances and mm. all the religions recognize that mm. uh, nobody thinks that you have some rigid adherence to something that would harm others you know in a really horrible way you say that i mean i agree with you of you of course but there are there are people in the christian tradition like saint augustine for example who would appear to be absolutist when it comes to this very question of truth telling and he seems to say if i understood him rightly that there are no exceptions you always tell the truth so the anne frank scenario obviously he wouldn't have known about that it happened long after i assume he would have told the nazis that anne frank was upstairs in the attic i'm sorry to hear that but i think you're right if, uh, of course did he admit his uh, affair with a woman that went over many many years uh, there's one thing to be asked about something and lie. It's another thing to do something and keep it a lie, mm. which he did apparently his whole life. I'm not blaming him here. I'm just saying I think he kept her in secret mm. and gave the impression when he was with her that she, he was tutoring her. And, of course, he had a baby with her. Mm. And in the confessions, he really loves her. Mm. But you know he can't marry her of course well, he he, he dumps her when he becomes a, a bishop yeah. <laughs> a bishop yeah so anyway let's do that son of man we won't do them all but that shows you right there mm. it's actually interpreting son of man like ezekiel uses it mm. son of man is in contrast to a heavenly being in these kinds of texts so a son of man appearing in heaven like daniel 7 is an anomaly the Ancient of Days, the one God is enthroned, and a Son of Man comes before. You know my other book, Paul's Ascent to Paradise. I think we've talked about some of that. That's about this intrusion of heaven that we find in some ancient texts, like Enoch. And in some of the texts, the person is just kicked out, like, what are you doing here? You know, you're a mortal. Mortals don't belong in heaven. But as time goes on, we have texts, uh, apocryphal and pseudepigraphal texts, Jewish and Christian, that want <clears> people <throat> up in heaven and they get to go and visit. But in Daniel 7, he sees one like, a, it's Aramaic, but it translates uh, like a human being. Mm. In many translations, we'll put that. And then when it's interpreted, everybody goes, that's Christ. That's, well, yeah. Christian, that's Jesus. He's coming for the throne and getting all this glory. But when it's interpreted in Daniel, this just amazes me that Daniel says, I don't know what that means. And the angel tells him, here's what it means. And what does he say? It's the people, the people of the Most High God who finally get vindication and assume power over evil. Well, the, the Israelites, to, to, to well, name yeah. Really, who knows? It could be, It's doesn't it say the people of the Most High God? Mm -hmm. And I think it could include, uh, it could be seen as more universal than that. Right. Okay. Uh, Daniel's fairly universal. I think, uh, you know, Isaiah 2 talks about all the nations coming up and this, even right. a Gentile in Isaiah 56 can have a name better than sons and daughters. And it doesn't talk about converting to Judaism, but just... Let's just mention in, in the New Revised Standard Version, which many academics would be the gold standard of English translations, in this passage of Daniel 7, uh, uh, verse 13 uh, as I watched in the night visions I saw one like a human being yes. coming the clouds of heaven uh, I mean, not, not that you need any support with what your views I'm just saying exactly. that, that you're yeah, absolutely to, and, and they do this cautiously Paul 
because it drastically affects sales. What's happening now, thank God, the market is changing so that many, many students in thousands of colleges and universities are ordering the new revised standard. There's enough of a market. But back when your main market, this would be 30 years ago when I began teaching, your main market for Bible sales is the Christian church by far. Yeah. Talking about the Holy Bible like you're holding up. Yeah. Uh, the Tanakh or the Jewish Bible, I mean, that's very low sales. You know, it's Jews buy that and scholars buy it. The JPS, the old JPS. So if you put human being in Daniel, because people want to go to Mark uh, 14, where Jesus, and we're going to go there now, Jesus before Pontius Pilate, oh. are you the Christ? This is verse 61, the son of the blessed. Notice, son of the blessed is God. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? He says, I am, meaning I'm the Messiah, the son of the blessed, like at the baptism, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Direct reference to Daniel, the verse you just read, mm -hmm. uh, Daniel 7. So this Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven was later transformed into the idea of just Jesus himself will appear in heaven. Okay. Mm -hmm. And he's to be worshipped and he's God and so forth. And this, you can see how it could develop that way. Now, if you look at Matthew and Luke, they do different things with this. But this is the earliest thing that we have. And then in Mark 13, when the Son of Man does come, I'm not saying it couldn't be Jesus, but it's still a collective idea. This is the time when what's called the saints of the Most High. Mm. That's the Son of Man. Now notice the Most High, El Elyon in Hebrew. Uh, El Elyon is the one God to whom no one can be compared. So you have mm. to keep that in mind, the reference. Mm. So who are the sanctified ones of the Most High? Uh, so I'm not saying Mark doesn't think Jesus will appear in the clouds of heaven and gather the saints, calls them the elect. But read it in the context of Daniel 7 and you'll see that the human being appearing before God is given all authority, power, and so forth to be able to orchestrate this final end. And you shouldn't pull it out of context and say, see, he's the, he's the son of man, we should worship him. But there's still a mystery here on in verse 63 of Mark 14. Yes. And the high, the high priest tore his clothes. This is after Jesus saying those things and said, why do we do we still need witnesses? You you have heard his blasphemy. Yes. So what, what is I, I know this has been a many scholars are unclear exactly what is the blasphemy here, in fact. But what, in your view, is this blasphemy, if this is historical, of course, which is if it's historical, I think he's claiming to be the. Uh, agent of that Daniel 7 character. You know, when a son of man appears, he's saying, uh, yes, I'm the Christ, but what's more, you're going to see the son of man coming in the kingdom. This is kind of code for Daniel's people. Pilate wouldn't have any idea what this was. Mm -hmm. This is an internal thing. Yeah. And then you pick it up in chapter 13 when the son of man does appear. Let's just put it this way. 
uh, it would be blasphemy because, first of all, these uh, these are Sadducees. They don't even believe in the resurrection. Hmm. They they would not understand this as an apocalyptic event that's soon to come. And he is essentially saying, I, I will inaugurate this, you know, as the Messiah. I mean, Mark does think he's the Messiah, the Davidic Messiah. And there are major things said about the Davidic Messiah in the Hebrew Bible. Right. So uh, he will rule on a throne and administer justice and righteousness and so forth. So he is claiming that. But I think he's saying, in effect, I am Christ. Okay. But you'll also see the whole end of the age coming when Daniel 7 is fulfilled. In effect, if so you kill me, yeah. you're... Mm. Don't think you've stopped uh, the cosmic process because it's very near. He actually says you will see it. So, so, so the high priest is rebuking Jesus for his presumed presumption to be this agent of, of the exactly. agents. How, how dare you claim this, uh, you, you, you criminal, whatever, Um not that in itself it is intrinsically blasphemous, but the context would suggest that this this is a presumptuous claim, and the Sadducean high priest, as you say, doesn't believe in the resurrection anyway. It, it's kind of all has the uh, a, a bad ring, perhaps, to the high. That's priest. right. But I would just say that look, even declaring to be the Christ, what does the Christ do? Mm. In some passages in the Hebrew Bible, he seems to be rather cosmic. Like Isaiah 61, the Lord has anointed me to preach good news and so forth, raise the dead, heal the sick. Uh, in the Qumran text that we know, uh, uh, 4Q521, the heavens and the earth obey the Messiah. And then he raises the dead and all this. So he's a divine agent, very exalted, but not God. No. In other words, we're talking about do they have the view that he's God? No, the Son of Man is not God, however exalted. Yeah. And there's no uh, idea in Daniel 7, the elect of the Most High God take power and glory, and Jesus essentially gives that to them. So then let's go to the end, because we've got to get to Paul. Maybe we'll have to break it up and do several shows, but we'll see. And there, uh, Mark 16... It's just astounding because uh, it ends at verse 8. So the disciple, uh, Mary Magdalene and the other women come to the tomb. It's empty. And uh, the stone is already rolled back. In entering the tomb, they see a young man, not an angel. Mm -hmm. Mark's got earthquakes, resurrection of the dead, angels. I mean, it's just like cosmic fireworks. Clearly, he is not happy with this, mm. <laughs> these first not eight verses, mm. Matthew, and neither is Luke, and neither is John. So basically, this is, a, I interpret it as a reburial. Uh, they stash his body quickly at the end of uh, Passover, I mean, right as Passover was dawning, in a tomb nearby. And the burial party, which is reported to be Joseph of Arimathea, uh, would have come and uh, reburied him, and so, or, and or you could interpret it as he disappeared. However, but either way, the young man, not an angel, says, "Don't be amazed. 
Jesus who is crucified, he's risen, he's not here. Literally, it's the uh, passive of a gay road to raise up. Uh, I'm not saying it's not resurrection. It, it could be seen as resurrection. But to use a gay row rather than anastasis no. is the same thing in Mark 9 when he tells the guy, pick up your bed and walk. And it says, and the guy, and he raised him up with his hand. Well, he's not resurrecting him from the dead. Mm. So I'm not saying it couldn't imply that Jesus has come to life because Mark thinks he was dead. Uh, but it is not the glory hallelujah uh, uh, ending. He's basically saying, he's gone, but you're going to see him in Galilee. Mm. That's mm. it. They go, where is he? He's gone. Mm. Uh, literally, they've taken, he's been lifted up. He's been taken up. But it could just be carried away. Come look, he's gone. Look in the tomb. He's not there. And they flee from the tomb and they say nothing to anyone because they're afraid, period. Now, how do you end a gospel like that? What I present on the course, I was taught by my teacher, a Brit, Norman Perrin, the great uh, professor. And Norman Perrin, trained in England uh, by Manson. T.W. Manson was his oh, yeah. teacher. Yeah. He says, this is the dramatic way Mark wants you to remember one thing. His last view of Jesus is what? Utterly forsaken by God and by all men, all mm -hmm. humans. Mm and crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which Luke takes out, of course, because mm. that's kind of shocking. And that's our last view. Mm. So now we see he's been taken away. I would say Mark believes in the resurrection. Uh, mm. how, how to explain that? Probably some sort of glorified heavenly life. And he says, you'll see him in the Galilee. So Mark remembers a Galilee tradition, not a not a Jerusalem tradition. But here's the shocking thing, Paul. If if this is a gospel, no birth, no virgin birth, no appearances at the end, how could you possibly put this out as the Jesus story and leave those out if they were already current and circulating? And I think it's a real good argument. We People say, oh, Mark's around 70, Matthew's around 80, Luke's around 90, John's around 100. And you have to ask, I tell my students, because I put that on the board when I'm talking. I said, isn't it funny we just dumped 10 years? What's going on here? What we're really saying is Matthew's later, Luke is probably later than that, John is later than that. We have no idea of a date. No. I think they are post-70, probably. Uh, but either way, let's just say... Mark circulates without Matthew and Luke for a while. Yeah. I'll, I'll go at 10 years. So now I've got the story of Jesus. Q is the sayings. I got that. I got the story. But you're telling a story of an ordinary man who's blessed by God and chosen and anointed as the Messiah, who's crucified and buried and is taken up. And uh, you say, well, what's the evidence of that? because it's asserted in the text. Yeah, but did anybody like see him or touch him or mm -hmm. we need proof? Was it? And he, he doesn't give that. Uh, mm. I think his audience knows enough about the Galilee traditions. This parallels the Gospel of Peter. Mm. People always miss the last line of the Gospel of Peter. It's got crazy stuff. You know, Jesus mm. comes out of the tomb like a 
cross reaching to heaven and all that, but they always forget the last. Peter said, it says that Peter says to the rest of them, no, it says, we wept and cried for seven days. If they've just seen him, why are they waiting seven days? Because it's the days of unleavened bread. You can't go back to Galilee till the festival's over. You know, for your Muslim audience, that would be like going on the Hajj, but you never finish it. You just get there and stay a while and they go, oh, I'm leaving, I did the Hajj. Well, you didn't do it unless you go through the whole process. And so in the same way, you say, well, you were there for Passover, but for the days of unleavened bread, you also stay. So Peter, the gospel of Peter, it's very precious. It, it, it says, we wept and cried for seven days. If you've been seeing him that day in Jerusalem and touching him and rejoicing and saying he's risen, you're not going to be weeping and crying for seven days. So I think we have a little glimpse of what happened here. Mm. They find the tomb empty. Whether they're told by a young man or not, I have no idea, but, but they're in despair. What happened to Jesus? But up in Galilee, they have a recovery of faith, probably through sightings of Jesus that Paul recounts. He appeared unto Peter. He appeared unto James and the Twelve. He appeared unto 500 of them. These are, I'm going to call them apparitions, frankly, because they're never presented as, oh, I ate with him, I touched him. I, we've covered this before in other interviews, you know, these resurrection narratives when you put them together. So I think Mark preserves a very precious thing. Not that Jesus wasn't resurrected in his view. I think he thinks he was. He talks about on the third day, rise again three times in, in this. But that this community does not hold the virgin birth or the resurrection appearances that come later. And in that sense, then, I think we can say they are derivative and ahistorical. And these are the texts that all the apologists, even the what I call the high-level apologists use. We have irrefutable evidence these people died for their faith. They saw him. They touched him. They ate with him. And then you say, but in the earliest account, there's none of that. And indeed, the, the early church felt the absence of that very keenly in, in my uh, Bible. Exactly. exactly. Version. Um, you can probably not work it out, but it says you've got the, the longer ending of Mark and the shorter ending of Mark. Now, these are all endings that are added uh, later in the second century. There are actually, three, uh, three other endings. Some people even four. Um, and, and that these are not uh, connected to the original gospel. And we know that because the, the, the oldest complete New Testament manuscripts we have, the Codex Sinaiticus, in the British Library, not far from where I'm sitting, does not have any of these end, uh, longer <laughs> endings no. or shorter endings. It simply ends abruptly uh, with verse 8, and they, for they were afraid. And, so and you know how else we know it, Paul, is if you read the longer ending, it's simply cobbled together from the ending of Matthew. You can actually no. see it. The ending of Luke and the ending of John. Right. They just take, in that order, they just take two men on the road to Emmaus. Let's put that in. Some of the church felt keenly the absence of, of the resurrection appearances. Can you imagine? So they took them from other sources that were later and added them to the earliest gospel, which did not contain resurrection appearances. And But there's still, the thing, even though the NRSV is, I say, the gold standard, these um the, the longer um yeah the longer ending of mark is still in the bible with I mean, the gap with the little gap 
yeah, a, a very slight, but but it's it's still there. In of the course, city. why? Because um, nobody would. But when the RSV came out in 1952, the RSV, mm. the New Testament, I think it was 52, Bible burnings all over the country in America. They took out the resurrection of Jesus in this devil's Bible. They were burning copies of the RSV. Uh, the preachers got up and ranted and railed. It was so ignorant. Now, Paul, if you take this, imagine this circulating, let's say for 10 years. So for 10 years, the followers of Jesus in the Mediterranean world had a singular story of Jesus. I mean, we don't, there might be others, but this is what we have. First story. And it doesn't have that. Well, I don't think they're, they know of it. They don't believe it. These things were added later. They were invented. They were concocted. Look, if Mark knew them, he would put them in. I think he is a devout follower of Jesus. He doesn't know this. Or if he does know rumors, he says there's no evidence of that. And then you go to Paul, who is our earliest witness, and he agrees with Mark. There were sightings of Jesus, okay? But he doesn't say... He says, and I can't even tell you what kind of a body because it was glorious and powerful and heavenly. So they are not walking around with the resuscitated corpse for a couple for 40 days, according to Luke. Yeah. I mean, and he eats with them, Acts 1. Mm -hmm. He eats with them. Every day he's eating. I guess he's going to the toilet too. Not to be vulgar here, but let's be realistic. Mm -hmm. It's just like, come on. Why? Because... People like Celsus later, but early on, would have said, Celsus is the critic of Christianity. Yeah. you got a bunch of hysterical women and deluded disciples saying they saw something. Wow, it was probably a ghost. So what does Luke say? I'm not a ghost. Look, I'm flesh and blood. Touch me. Here, I'm hungry. And, and now, now we have to present the apologetic view of resurrection. But for Paul... The visionary experience he had and the visionary experience he attributes to others was enough. And he would say, before God, I do not lie. I saw the Lord. Talk to Peter. He said he saw the Lord. But I guarantee you it was in the Galilee. Christianity was born in the Galilee. Mm -hmm. And it was by people losing this. When you lose a charismatic leader like this, it's just devastating. We know it all through history when you have these. And imagine Jesus as a just extraordinary figure. And he's gone. He's dead. Mm -hmm. And they, they can't believe it. And they begin to have experiences. I can't interpret somebody else's visionary experience. But I can go by the reports. But I always go back to what Paul said because the Corinthians want to know, oh, really? Well, what's the body look like if you saw him? See, they're being practical. They're thinking of something coming out of a grave like a zombie apocalypse, right? We joke yeah. about that. Mm -hmm. and, and he goes, that's a stupid question. God will give resurrected people bodies that are appropriate to the world to come. I can't tell you what it's like. Uh, probably Paul saw something like an axe. We don't know. We didn't. But he says, I can't tell you what kind of a body. But he said it will be a glorious body, mm -hmm. which tends to, you think of light, you know, like a, a light being. I think it's very akin to some of the Marian uh, apparitions that 
yeah. reported. It sounds very much like that. Well, the visions of, of, of deceased religious leaders are actually quite common in his history. You exactly. mentioned Mary, um, which are still ongoing today. In Majiguri, I think, I think it is, uh, a bunch of young people claim to see Mary regularly and, and uh, take messages from her. And, yeah. and sometimes thousands say um, they saw it in the crowd uh, all believes it yeah so. and fatima and so on so the, and, and that's not unique to catholicism there are other examples so the idea of post-mortem appearance of religious leaders is actually a fairly common phenomenon in the, in the history of religions it's not unique to christianity um although unique claims are made about jesus uh, later in christianity so it's always important to remember that because people forget they think this is somehow unique it's kind of not unique in in the history of religions right so when the centurion finally confesses Jesus by saying, surely this was the son of God, and people, was that sarcastic? Was it true faith or whatever? Uh, I don't think it's either of those. It's Mark's way of saying the last view of Jesus is dead on the cross, forsaken by God, forsaken by his disciples. Mm -hmm. Is that the guy you want to follow? Mm -hmm. Because he was concerned, I think, as was Paul, that everybody wants the glorification. Mm. Like, why do you attach yourself to Jesus of Nazareth, whom you think is the Christ? Because of what he's going to do for you. You're going to get all this stuff. And Paul is saying constantly, Romans 8 and so forth, yes, that glory's coming. But you've got to look, look at the wounds on my body. Uh, that doesn't come easily. And he says, provided that we suffer with him, that we may be glorified with him. So I think Mark is a polemic against uh, what I would call the glory hallelujah gospel mm. that you hear often on the street. Mm. If you were, this was on our campus recently, if you were to die tonight, campus crusade for Christ, I'm sure you have it in England. Oh, yeah. If you were to die tonight, do you know absolutely you would go to heaven? It's not even a biblical question, but they ask it and you go, yeah, I hope so. But how would you like to know? Uh, oh, well, you know you're a sinner and Christ died for your sins. And if you accept him right now, you'll know you can will go to heaven. So all of a sudden, you're hooking yourself to the glorious Jesus who's going to be sure you go to heaven when you die. None of that being in the New Testament. It's totally mm. uh, secondary. And they don't tell you you're going to begin to speak out against evil and, and injustice and stand up tall for truth. And the world is going to crush you for that. Mm. They don't tell you that. And if you bear up with that and really become a person of, you know, become a prophetic person that stands up against evil. I often tell my students, I can teach it, but I'm not going to say I do it. You know, I live a, you know, I, I live a happy, comfortable life. I'm not wealthy or anything. And, but you know what I'm saying? I mean, these things are scary. <laughs> Mm. And there are people uh, among all religions uh, who've taken up, you think of Gandhi and you think of various Muslim figures, Jewish figures that courageously have stood against, stood for truth against justice and, and uh, oppression. And if they really speak to the powers that be, look at John the Baptist, look at Jesus. And I think Mark's concerned that the church is becoming a salvation machine here. Mm. You know, like, hook your star to Jesus, mm. and you'll go to heaven when you die. And he's saying that is not what he taught. Mm. That's what the disciples wanted. 
So I see it as a, a very important document for that lesson, no matter what you believe about Jesus. Mm -hmm. So our initial, your initial question was, did the earliest disciples of uh, Jesus think that he was divine or God in some way? And looking at one source, uh, Mark, the answer is a resounding no uh, from yourself. Although what they did or what Mark thought Jesus was indeed is a complicated question, Messiah, prophet, uh, and so on. But um, And you, one final quote, mm -hmm. and this kind of tops it off for yeah. Mark. I yeah. went to the end because of the Son of Man, but and that would be in Mark 12 when he is asked, what is the great commandment? Oh, yes. And he answers by quoting what's called the Shema. Yeah. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Mm -hmm. And that reflects all of the other passages in Judaism. I am the Lord, there is none beside me. I alone created the heavens and so forth. All the monotheism that runs through uh, Deuteronomy very, very clearly. You know, 10, 12 statements. No partner, no one beside me, and so forth. And Judaism had begun to develop some of these ideas of two powers in heaven and Metatron and little Yahweh, they call it, in mm -hmm. some of the mystical texts. And Mark, whether he's aware of that or not, he makes it clear. There's one God, love your fellow human being as yourself. But notice, it's not just that he affirms that. He affirms the one God very unambiguously. Matthew takes it out. Not because he, this passage, not because he doesn't believe it. I think in a sense he believes it, but he wants a little bit of partnership with God. But also, Jesus, the guy who asked commends Jesus. And he doesn't want a scribe or a Pharisee commending Jesus. Mm. And he says, you are right, teacher. If that's true, that this would be more than all that we do here in the temple, meaning that would be more than Judaism. That's mm. what he's saying. That would be more than all of our practice. <laughs> and he says, you're not far from the kingdom. Mm. That's the climactic statement in Mark. Mm. So to know the one God, to know that we're fundamentally obligated in uh, encouraged to love our fellow humans, love your neighbors yourself. It's the golden rule, basically all religions have it. And that's it. And Jesus says, you've got the kingdom. It literally is just the most thunderbolt of teaching. And uh, the implications of this teaching are, are, are manifold because if you were to ask, and I don't mean to pick on Christians so much, I don't, I don't mean that, I'm just, it's by way of contrast, because it's significant, it's noteworthy, this contrast. If you were to ask your average Christian, or even your average educated Christian, you know, what, what's the greatest commandment? How many of them would recite the Shema, which is what Jesus did in Mark chapter? They would just say, love God and love your neighbor. They would always say love, yes, exactly. That's my experience, they'd always say, which is actually the second commandment, it's not the first commandment which jesus was which commandment is the first of all and jesus says the shema hero israel the lord our god is one Lord." so so I, but i'm not criticizing christian i'm just pointing out a remarkable contrast between what christians would almost always say or in fact in my experience always say but hey that's my limited subjective experience and what jesus himself said the contrast is remarkable secondly he the jesus is what he didn't say he didn't say well hero israel the lord our god is three and he is father and son. And right. of course, yeah. I know it's of course, but he should have said that. 
arguably, if mm. if the later tradition was true, because this is it's so important that Nicaea was called the Constantine called a council of Nicaea and Chalcedon and and you know Constantinople, etc. etc. This is the key doctrine of the church. And Jesus didn't give that doctrine when asked specifically about this question. The greatest commandment of all is to believe in God. That's right. That's he, right. He didn't say that. And thirdly, and this is more my point, is that this teaching uh, is finds a fascinating reiteration in Surah 112 of the Quran, which actually this has been pointed out by Western uh, scholars, where the the Shema is referenced in a way, the unity of God, Ahad, 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 Arabic. Exactly. Exactly. The same concept. And that and and it seems like the Quran is actually reasserting or restating this yeah. teaching as found in Mark 12 or on the lips of Jesus, I should say, which is also the teaching of Israel, the found on the lips of Moses. So you have this fascinating continuity between Moses and Jesus and Muhammad, if you like, through these three right. faiths in the concept of God. And the odd one out, therefore, and again, I'm I'm not meaning polemical, but the odd one out is the Christian church which doesn't subscribe to that, which says, no, 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 he's not just one, he is three. But the threeness is missing, is missing from the Shema. But it should be there if it was fundamental and foundational to Christian understanding of God, to Jesus. It should be. It should be. This, uh, we mentioned uh, James Dunn. Dunn is the uh, Christology in the making. Oh, yep. big, thick book. Book. <laughs> this yeah. is Turn this is it where they can see how thick it is. So. Uh, uh, this, I read price, this one, yeah. Uh, this is later, and I think more accessible to people. Oh, yes. James yes. McGrath, really yes. recommend it. Yes. And he covers the variety of understandings of the one God in Judaism and does show that there are these other views of two powers in heaven and so forth. But uh, it's very well done. Mm. And he, that was his, uh, I think it was his dissertation has turned into a, a good book. So I think we can say that uh, our earliest uh, gospel source, mm -hmm. at least, uh, narrative of Mark, uh, does not uh, have the view of Jesus as God, quite to the contrary. And if you doubt it, quote the Shema to yourself and answer the question, why do you call me good? There is one good God. And I think that's the position. I'm not being polemical here, like you. I'm not trashing Christians. No, it's, uh, you can have all sorts of views that, well, this emerged and began to develop and later was fully revealed. That's fine. All I'm saying, it's very limited, is that in this text, in Greek and in English, there's some surprising things in it, like mm -hmm. no virgin birth, no resurrection appearances, and all of this other material we've covered and isn't that rather shocking, given the subsequent developments? Because it circulated, and actually the first people to mention it, <laughs> I guess it's Papias. He doesn't say, and then he claims it's an interpretation of Peter, which is not, not valid at all. I think nobody thinks that. But he doesn't say, and it's a really lousy book, and it you know, doesn't even support Christology. And you know, all of these guys... They don't mean they prefer Matthew. All the you know, look at the church fathers. Of course they do. Hmm. You got everything, including the ending. All power is given to me. Well, that's why Matthew is is the first book of the New Testament, not Mark. Even though Mark is the earliest book to be written, there's a reason it's not there. Um, and and uh, but, you know, Professor John Barton, another biblical scholar from Oxford. Uh, uh, has said that uh, he said on blogging theology actually, but 
um, that in his view, uh, Mark is obsolete in the eyes of Matthew and yes, Luke. That's it right. no longer says that Matthew and Luke, when they were written, were replacements because they gobble up Mark, they edit him, alter him, correct him, and change him. Uh, he doesn't have the virgin birth. He doesn't have the resurrection. So uh, in a sense for them, Mark is not the word of God. They destroy and Mark. They actually destroy it. Because they get rid of Mark and mm -hmm. they had their new, right, this is the gospel. As Luke says, uh, I write an orderly account for you, dear Theophilus. And Matthew seems to have the same idea. So it is ironic, really, that, that Mark still stands in the Christian Bible alongside the gospels that uh, were written to replace Mark. Uh, and yet they still stand, the four of them, we haven't mentioned John, uh, together and that's an interesting that wasn't i don't think arguably quite what matthew and luke ever intended that they should be standing next to mark that's right and luke actually when he says orderly that's one translation of that uh uh, ad, uh adjective it can also mean accurate more accurate account oh really I so he know. could even be not just like i put the order in differently because he follows mark's order yeah. He does largely more than Matthew does. Online Matthew, uh, but more. Uh, he, he's just uh, now. He does leave some things in that would surprise you, mm. like uh, this. Why do you call me good? He leaves that in. Mm. So that shows that there, there, Matt, there's wrestlings with. Should we, we leave that? that? Mark ten forty five. The famous. The Son of Man came uh, not as not to be served, but to give his life as a, an offering or ransom. Uh, in Mark chapter ten verse forty five. Luke omits yeah. that. That's right. Uh, one of the most significant statements in Mark is completely deleted. That's right. Luke because he doesn't agree with that soteriology. No, that's right. How Absolutely. people become reconciled with God, which is mainly through repentance, just like uh, mm -hmm. well, as, a, as a Jew would teach anyway. Um, now, let me add one little point mm -hmm. that I always make to my students, because my students are, uh, many of them, we're in the south of the United States, the Bible Belt kind of area mm -hmm. of North Carolina, conservative. It's a red-blue state, but it's mostly red. Uh, it, red wins usually because it's just the cities like Charlotte and Duke and Chapel Hill that, you know. But by red, you mean, sorry, for those of us who are not American, you mean Republicans? You mean uh, Republican, uh, but then therefore conservative, and right. it comes from Christianity. So right. I don't go into the classroom and say, uh, I'm gonna, it's just gonna devastate all your views and we're gonna destroy everything. And I say, let me teach you a new meaning of the word critical. Hmm. And those of you who love the scripture and think it's inspired, you'll really appreciate this. Critical means careful. It doesn't hmm. mean destroying. I didn't destroy Mark, I read it carefully and let Mark be Mark. Now yeah. we'll go to Matthew. We'll yeah. also read that carefully and try to reconstruct in his time and in his circles, what is he doing? So actually, this is, you know, you're going to have to handle it yourself in terms of what it ultimately means. Mm -hmm. But you're actually being more careful with the text because you're learning these things that most people are not aware of. And, you know, after a couple of weeks, they just love it because they begin to see, well, that, you know, People don't even know this. They don't know that Mark has this and Matthew has this. And I said, don't think of contradictions. That's not the point. Contradictions can always be reconciled. Like in Matthew, the voice says, this is my beloved son. In Mark, it says, the, uh, you are. Well, just have the voice say to Jesus, you are, this is. So I got rid of the contradictions. 
and now I've destroyed Mark because I don't have Mark anymore. I've destroyed Matthew because I have a, mm. I put in Mark. Was oh, so it like the cleansing of the temple? Did it happen at the beginning or the end of the exactly? Ministry? Well, so because, what because you do is you recognize Christ, Christ because that you add all the four gospels because of absurdity because it's a, a singular unique event in all the gospels yes and your your higher end i call them higher end evangelicals i'm not going to name them but you know them they're they they understand these critical things they still have ways of reassembling their own faith stance but mm. none of them would be unaware of any of these things and yeah. would cover them in all of their books and exposition yeah. Uh, I will mention one who I think is the best, Dale Ellison. Dale Ellison is a Christian, he says, and however mm -hmm. he defines that. But he has written the best books on caref carefully looking at these texts. Yeah, yeah, and so it's not a debate. Like, I'm going to ram my view and you ram your view and then mm -hmm. we vote and see who won. I'm talking about what's in the text. I think, <laughs> so. I, think I mean, I, I remember having this conversation with my former pastor in the church, a uh, uh, Baptist church where I became a Christian some years ago. Um, and um, a similar kind of discussion that we're having now, they're not, not, to, not to this detail. And he rejected the whole methodology. I and mean, he's a conservative evangelical uh, in London. And his argument was, well, for me, the New Testament, all the books of Testament, is a single book inspired by God. And therefore he would homogenize. He would bring all these different strands together. He would bring in not just Mark, but he would bring in Paul and John and, of course. and Peter and Book of Revelation. And, and he would stir them all around and he have a systematic. He refused to do what you have suggested um, uh, as a matter of principle. And I found that curious because, you know, historic because clearly the books in Testament are written by men. I mean, they even say they are. Paul says he wrote these letters. So you can actually look at them in the careful way you suggest. But for him, they had elevated to such a status that they had become something else. They become holy writ. And you couldn't do that with them. Now, that's up to him and good luck to him. But I always felt very, even when I was a Christian, unsatisfied with that. Well, he's creating a new product that did not exist really by his own creativity. Exactly. I like to use the idea of uh, film. Let's say we have five Jesus films and they're gonna interpret Jesus cin cinematically. And I double them all together and I, oh, I love this clip from this film and this clip and this, and oh, look, Jesus does this. And there will be significant differences in interpretation. And then I have the new Jesus film and I say, this has all of it in. You you should like this film. And the individual uh, film producer or director is going to say, you just run my work. <laughs> I had a singular interpretation or any artist or any. And I know, uh, you know, people say, well, this is not that. It's just an analogy to show mm. Mark's a careful writer. He puts in what he wants. He puts in what he knows. Let's respect that. I think it's disrespectful to the writers. I really do. It is because then you lose, as you, as you say, the, the unique distinctivenesses. It's called redaction criticism of, of uh, say, Luke when he redacts, edits Mark. So he actually changes Mark uh, instead mm -hmm. of I mentioned ten forty-five. But you mentioned the example in Matthew where he changes the words of Jesus in Mark chapter ten, verse seventeen. Mark says, "Why do you call me good?" Has Jesus say, and Matthew changes that to remove the embarrassment. Now. You've you've noticed that because you're carefully exactly yeah text. If you had this uh, different view, which my former pastor did, 
you will be blind to all of this. You will ignore it. In fact, worse, you will suppress it because you have a doctrine of scripture that requires the inerrancy of the Bible. And therefore, anything like that must be suppressed and explained away. And I would argue the price you pay is one of intellectual dishonesty, disingenuousness. You're no longer being honest with the text. That's right. It requires you to be dishonest. And that for me, and for most Christians who study this academically, as, as I did ultimately at university, it's a price too high to pay. And yes, we want to be is. honest with our scriptures. We want to be and honest. And most Christians don't want to be honest, unfortunately, because it's disrespectful it's to the writers because they have their own context and purpose. And you're now appropriating that for your use without their permission, you might say. And I would want to bring the author of Mark back. I don't, we don't know the name of the person, but whoever he was or she, uh, you know, we don't know, probably a male. And, and I think they would say, well, wait, that's not what I wrote. I don't even see what I wrote anymore. I'm reading Luke or Matthew, especially Matthew. I, I don't see what I wrote. Unfortunately, I've, I've mentioned this before. What happens, I'm 10 years old, okay, and I'm going to read the New Testament. I'm a good, devout Christian. I was raised this way. And I read Matthew. It's first. I make it through. Then I get to Mark. You know what happens? I go, oh, this is short. I, I've read all this. I'm going to read it really fast. And then I get to Luke, and I go, oh, this is good. It's even longer. It's got Acts and other things. And then John, oh, that's different. So what happens? I've actually almost removed from existence the very thing that was first and early mm. by thinking it's, it's, I've already heard all these stories. Mm. You know, this is like, I was taught this even. It's, it's a quick summary. You don't have time to read the whole thing. Mm. But here's a shorter, uh, Matthew's 28, this is only 16 chapters. Mm. Put it in a little pamphlet. It's like your quick take on Jesus. And I didn't know. I, I'm sure I didn't give it hardly any attention, and I certainly didn't notice any differences. Yeah. And I'm sure I was reading the King James, so it had the full ending, so I didn't even notice that. Exactly, yeah. And yeah. I was actually thankful. Oh, my God, Matthew adds the birth and all that. I'm glad we have that because I guess mm. Mark, you know, he's writing the praises. He didn't have space to put that in. I mean, that's what I thought. But mm. I was 10 years old. <laughs> And so when I became a man, as Paul says, you put away childish things. And you don't read, think of two biog three biographies of Abraham Lincoln. You know, forget the film thing, because people, well, that's art. We got three biographies of Lincoln. They differ quite drastically in their interpretations. Uh, there are some anti-Lincoln books, and there's some pro-Lincoln books about all kinds of things to do with the Civil War and so forth. And you say, you know, all these views, who knows? I'm going to make one Lincoln biography and it'll have everything in it. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll put all the views. I'll kind of mix them. I don't yeah. think the authors would appreciate you taking their work like that. And that's what's happening. So, yeah, yeah very, very interesting. Well, yeah. well, well, we'll leave it there. Perhaps we, we'll, we will revisit another, another uh, video, the other. Uh, even earlier sources, not the Gospels, Paul, of course, the authentic Paul, because unfortunately, according to most scholars, there are forgeries. Uh, of Paul's letters in the New Testament. Again, not being polemical, this is standard historical views, mainstream normative views. There are books in the New Testament that are forged. Uh, uh, if this is news to you, uh, it, it's bad news, I know, but this is this is reality. 
Um, and, and also this mysterious thing called Q, which is not something out of Star Trek. This is, so I couldn't resist. You know, Star Trek has a character called Q. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah you do. This is not a Star Trek. And we're uh, not even going to call it Q. We're <laughs> actually going to deal with it uh, as it should be dealt with, as, right. as a source. Oh, are you giving away which the Q plot? means a source. You're giving away the plot now. But yes, uh, no, it is really called Q. And uh, it's a thing, um, allegedly. I say allegedly because, hey, we'll get into that. But um, God willing, we'll deal with that in another video. But I do want to thank you, Dr. James Tabor, for your fascinating exposition of, and also, you, you know, this is a fruit of your uh, th three decades scholarship. Um, Actually four, because four. before that I taught at Notre Dame and William and Mary. So uh, I'm older than I look. I'm about 95 years old, Paul. And so, really? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But no. You're me. No, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, no, but I, I've taught 43 years in higher education full time really? as a professor. So oh, extraordinary. And you're continuing your work, uh, your education Absolutely. work. I mean, on uh well partly on youtube on your website and i'll link to the course on mark that you've mentioned and uh, writing books i've got a new book coming out it's in french already called mary and it's the mother of jesus not mary magdalene isn't she and wearing a hijab suspiciously on that cover did she what <laughs> isn't she wearing a hijab mary isn't isn't that a uh, this is a classic painting of Mary that I, they, I, the French I, chose, I, probably. I think, I think it's ironic that the French... I think so, yeah. ...have a hijab on it, and it's the very... And that will be out uh, next spring. It's called The Lost Mary, How the Jewish Mother of Jesus Became the Virgin Mother of God. Wow. Oh, that's so, a must. Really because right. she's also divinized in yeah. certain circles <laughs> to be the Queen of Heaven. Yes. So we've got, if if you think of second yeah. powers as being idolatrous, really, uh, in some forms of Christianity, you've got more than one. You, you can have dozens of them, but particularly the Blessed Virgin, as she's called. And, and I try, she's been stripped of her womanhood, her religion, mm. her, uh, what she really was in the time, uh, a mother of these children and so forth. But anyway, that'll be next year. We'll, when that comes out, we'll talk about it. Um, right, look forward to that. But also, your revised edition of your book, Restoring Abrahamic Faith, uh, will be available soon-ish? I hope. Uh, yeah, this is the old one. The new one has a similar cover, but it's being... Uh, I am revising it. I hope to finish it this month, uh, but I've got Waco coming up. You know, it's the 30th anniversary of Waco, and I was involved in that. And I have to go to Waco. I have to. So when you say you're involved, you weren't there as a member of the Branch Davidians. No, 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 no. <laughs> I helped. I worked with the FBI to try to. Uh, I just thought I clarified that you're not a wanted uh, criminal. The actually. No, you no, no. With the FBI. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And then while we're doing books, right at the end, oh, yes. uh, my translation of Genesis, oh, I think I you'll find very refreshing. Gosh. It's different from all other English translations because wow. it's it's called the Transparent English Bible. Wow. And the idea is it tries to let the reader see through to the Hebrew, even if you don't know Hebrew. And it has all kind. It, it, it's fairly, people call it literal. It's not really literal. Well, it is literal, but it's more literary because it allows, I'll just give you one example. And Jacob left uh, Shiloh and went to Shechem. Actually, in Hebrew, it says, and Jacob pulled up stakes lifted his feet and walked to Shechem. Wow. So now people say, well, it means he went. It does. 
but there's a poetic value yes yeah. he, he pulled up stakes hmm. and and lifted his feet and walked i i love it and all kinds of things like that illusions and uh so people it has over a thousand notes in the back so you can just read the text but it's beautiful to read you you particularly as a muslim would enjoy mm. the stories of abraham isaac jacob ishmael mm. uh because there's a lot of theology that gets into those from mm. both the christian and jewish side and i'm very careful with singulars and plurals i'm very careful with uh, grammar tenses mm. so uh oh, i people, didn't know you'd written that actually I, I must get that it looks really yeah, just i think you'll enjoy it it mm. makes reading genesis new like i've never read this before so well I mean, and i was changed in the king james version anyway um yeah okay paul all right well that's great well thank you so much uh james thank you. take care until next time everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.